Well, there are several questions that I hope that we're going to answer in this series. And I'm going to give you a few of them. There's a lot more, but here's a few of them. What is the goal of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian? And how can we gain victory over these sin struggles? How can we become effective in our Christian witness, wherever we are? How can we begin to live the way that we know we ought to live? See, that's the aim of this series called Root to Fruit. We're going to go deep so that we can grow up. That's the aim, that we would get more than knowledge, that we would get transformation. Now, just really transparently, and let's just get all on the, e- on the same level foot before the cross. Aren't you like me, at least in this, aren't you tired of the same struggles of sin? Wouldn't it be really nice to be able to actually gain more victory over sin? Are you tired of feeling like you know the truth? You know that the gospel is transformative. You know the word of God is living and active, yet it seems so inactive in your own life. See, I really, I think I'm probably preaching this series for me and I'm inviting you in on my journey. I know that sounds terrible. I don't think pastors are supposed to do that. But I really, when I began to first begin thinking of doing this series, and the Lord just kept putting it on my mind over and over and over again, what began to grow in me was an excitement. I think this is going to really impact me. I'm hoping that it will really impact you as well. And this is meant for a church. It's written to the churches at Galatia. So it's met corporately, not just a bunch of individuals. Hey, I hope you grow. I hope you grow. I hope you become more like Christ. It's that we all might become more like Christ. That we all might be a church that is the bride of Christ, powerfully effective in this world for the kingdom of God. Well, our very first point of the three of them that I'm going to give you today, it's going to seem rather shocking perhaps, so let's just jump right into it. Here we go. If you've got your outline with you. Your sermon notes. Here we go. Number one, we have been given freedom. Now, I know that's underwhelming. You're wondering right now, well, why is that so shocking? All right, so let's let that trickle in for a little bit. In fact, I'm going to give you about 12 minutes of trickle as I walk through this. We have been given freedom. So let's look at Galatians 5. We're going to jump right into the, really actually towards the end of the book, which is always dangerous to do. I'm going to help us do this safely getting the context but look at verse 16 ready now everybody look at it with me open up your bibles i hope they're open galatians chapter 5 verse 16 we're a bible preaching church we preach almost always expositionally here's how it begins but i say now let's just stop right there because some of you wonderfully have the niv the new international virgin And yours does not say, but I say. Yours says, so I say. And I'm going to actually draw some distinction. That's that's actually one Greek word that they've taken three English words to translate. So that's one Greek word. And honestly, the better way to translate it is the word but. And did you know that the word but, did you know, by the way, that there's over 4,300 times the word but occurs in the scriptures? So it's really important we understand that when you come to the Word of God and you see the word but, especially as it heads a sentence, 
You've got to have the discipline like I do to stop, hit the pause button, and rewind for a little bit. You've got to go backwards before you go forward. But will not allow you. That word will not let you have forward progression until you stop and go backward for a little bit. So we're going to go backward, and we're going to find out what Paul has really been saying. Here's what I want you to understand. Ready? Get this in your mind for a moment. I want you to picture a chain. I don't, you can picture that, a necklace if you want. I guess for me, I think logging chain. Maybe that's why I dressed the way I did tonight. I don't know. I think logging chain. So I want you to think of a chain made up of a lot of different links. And when you get to that word but, I want you to think it's a link. It's a link that actually ties two strands or more strands together. So here we go. We're going to find out what Paul has been saying. If you go all the way back to verse 1 of chapter 5, can you do that with me? Look how that starts. For freedom Christ has set us free. But the Galatians, the churches in Galatia began living as slaves, not sons. Now listen, these are believers. Paul identifies them in chapter 3. These are Christians. These aren't a bunch of non-believers masquerading as believers. These are These are churches full of believers. Believers are sitting in the services. But they had begun living as slaves, not as sons of God, children of God, sons and daughters. But what Christ has done is set believers free. And the way that he's done that, you ready? This is huge. The way that Jesus has set you free, Christian brother and sister, me free, is through his death, listen, and resurrection. Don't divorce those. Don't separate that. They belong together, his death and his his resurrection. Here's what I mean. In his death, Jesus atoned for the guilt of the sin for all of us who will believe. Did you hear that? It's in his death That he atoned for the guilt of the sin of all of us who would believe. Now listen, it's in his resurrection that he broke the power of sin. He atoned for it in his death. He broke it in his resurrection. That's why you cannot ever separate his death and his resurrection. They've got to go together. If he has not been resurrected, Paul says, then we are still in our sins. And we're still in the power of our sins. So every Christian is free from guilt, they're free from the penalty, and they're free from the power of sin. Now, I told you that this was going to be shocking, point number one, and I think probably still you're wondering, well, what is so shocking about this? Point number one is we have been given freedom. So let me now follow that up with a statement I just made. Are you ready? Got to let this trickle in. Every Christian is free from the guilt The penalty, I know, listen, I know you're with me so far. You've got those two first words down. I know, Pastor Tim, I'm free from the guilt. I'm free from the penalty. I don't know if you know, all of you, that you're free from the third one. You're free from the power of sin. Now, are you letting that get down in there? Christian, listen, you cannot let the devil distract you right now. You must bring this into focus. You're free, if you're a brother and sister in Christ, from the power and the guilt and the penalty of sin. You've got to operate knowing you're free from all three. 
Romans chapter 8 echoes this incredible truth. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The power of sin is a synonym for the law of sin. You got it? Don't, don't differentiate those. When you read the law of sin, think power of sin that locks you into its power, into its guilt, into its shame. But you got to remember Romans 8, that word condemnation means imprisonment with hard labor. Did you know they used to use that word to describe a prisoner who was put into hard service? So there is no more condemnation, no more imprisonment under the power of sin that will strip you of life in hard service. You are free from the penalty, the guilt, and the power of sin. You've been liberated. You've got freedom. Now, I want, to, I want you to hear this really clearly. And I'm going to do a lot of that, this, uh, that kind of that, that beckoning you to really hear this. I'm going to do a lot of that in this series. Because these are deep truths. And they've got unbelievably powerful ramifications in your life and in my life. So I want you to hear this really carefully. It is because of Christ that we could be made free. And it is by the Spirit of God that we can live in that freedom. Now, did you hear how I've just put that? It's by Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection that you are made free, that you are justified, if you want a fancy word. But it's by the power of the Spirit that you learn to live in that freedom, that you learn to be sanctified, which means to be made increasingly holy, to be made more like Jesus. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. It's the Spirit of God that will help you and help me to live in freedom. Now, I'm going to really, really show you what this looks like. But let's just get these undermining, not undermining, but these undergirding truths in. It's by the Spirit of God that you learn to live in the freedom that Jesus Christ has given you. But this freedom, by the way, has enemies. It has two of them, at least in the churches of Galatia. I'll give you both of them. First of them, first one was legalism. They were really, it seemed like, really battling this. Legalism is really kind of found its expression in the Galatian churches through circumcision. These are believers, and they were, they came, what came into the churches were these people called Judaizers. They came in, and they said, well, listen, yeah, you've got to have Christ, but you've also got to have the law of Judaism. You've got to have all of the Old Testament principles as well. You need Christ and the Old Testament principles to be saved. Paul is battling this. Legalism, by the way, then as well as today, is the belief that you must live right in order to win God's love. Now let me tell you something really quickly. There's probably not too many of us that don't have a little of this in our theology. You just might not realize it. It's the belief that you've got to live right if you're really going to get God's acceptance and love. But there's another enemy, and that other enemy of this freedom was called license. By the way, you want a really cool word that you can astound people with? You know, sit down and, and drop this word on them. It's called antinomianism. Everybody say that. 
you sound really intelligent. Anti against nomianism, the law. So antinomianism is, you know what? We don't need the law anymore. It doesn't operate. We're under grace. You can do whatever you want. You can live any way you want. You can sin as much as you want. We've got unlimited grace. The law is no longer in effect. Let's have fun. That's license. That was the other enemy of the freedom. For you were called, verse 13, chapter 5, you were called the freedom... Brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. This is what Paul is battling. But through love, serve one another. You see, these believers thought that since no one could do anything to gain God's love, then it just makes sense that you can't do anything to lose it so you can just live the way you want. Now, now... Listen to this. Neither legalists nor those believing they had a license to sin understood their freedom in Christ. The freedom that Jesus gives is not the power to do what you wish. It's to do what you ought. It's to do what you should. Now, you understand the difference? Because sometimes, I know, listen, I, I listen to preaching too. I've got podcasts that I listen to. Our, our family listened to one. Uh, Christmas morning before we open gifts. I mean, there's some awesome podcasts, right? So when preachers drop these powerful lines, like I'm still thinking of one part of it, and he's like four more paragraphs in the sermon. So let me say it again. The freedom of Christ is not the freedom to do what you wish. It's the freedom to do what you should. Do you hear that? Now, I'm going to really bring this out. I want to get this already undergirding your mind. It's not the freedom to do what you wish. It's the freedom to be able to do what you should. You see, Jesus frees us from the power, the penalty, the guilt of sin, so that in the power of the Spirit, we might, through love, verse 13, through love, serve one another. Now, here's the biggest thing I'm going to tell you so far. And by the way, what I'm about to tell you is going to completely put a thread through these 11 weeks of this sermon series. The freedom that Jesus has given us. You're ready? you got to hear this. Please get all of your attention on what I'm about to tell you. The freedom that Jesus gives us is the freedom from the power of sin. Listen. And the freedom to be able to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the expression of the freedom that Paul is going to talk about. That's the thread that's going to weave through every one of these weeks in this series. But there's an enemy deep down in every one of us that hates this freedom. And it wants us enslaved to sin. It powerfully influences us, all of us, to do anything but love. And it's where Paul goes next. Point number two. We have a war going on inside of us. And here's where we become extremely practical. Verse 16 through 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, are you reading this the way you ought to be reading that? Well, let me reread it wrongly. But I say walk by the Spirit, and some of the time you're not going to gratify the desires of the flesh. Wow, that just does not sound good, does it? Well, it shouldn't sound good because that's not the Word of God. I want you to read it again the right way. But I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not, this is a guarantee and a promise, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But listen, my life doesn't bear this out. 
your life probably doesn't bear this out. Where's the problem? I still sin. I still have really bad days. I still have really bad weeks. What does Paul mean, who wrote this, by the flesh? What are the desires of the flesh? Well, here we go. The flesh is that unredeemed, okay? It's that part of us that still remains in us even after we've been saved. And it's full of desires that run contrary to God. So let me say it again a little bit better. The flesh is the unredeemed part of us that has not been transformed into Christ's likeness that pulses in me with desires to run contrary to God. It's what makes us lean in, right? I'm giving some ways that you see it in our lives. It's what makes you lean in when someone lowers their voice to whisper a little bit of a juicy bit of gossip. That's your flesh. See, what I'm going to do right now in the next 10 to 15 minutes is I'm going to show you over and over how the flesh is operating. Because that's the key to victory. It's what pushes us, that flesh, to, to actually step on the gas pedal a little bit more when you see in the rearview mirror somebody's going to try to pass you. You ever do that? That's your flesh. That's my flesh. It's what moves us to steal our company's office products because, you know, they don't pay you enough anyways. So you bring the staplers and the staples and the paper clips and the paper home. That's your flesh. It accounts for why you might be able to watch three hours of television every night, but you struggle to read one chapter in the Bible. That's your flesh. Listen, this is what the flesh is doing. This is what it looks like when it's pulsing inside of you. When you have marriage fights, that's the flesh. When people murder, that is unrestrained flesh. When they steal, that is the flesh working it out. When they have addictions, that's the flesh it's not really hormones that cause kids to rebel and disrespect their parents. It's the flesh. Triggers that, ref that reflex of stubbornness when someone tells you to do something. That automatic response of, I'm not going to do that. That's your flesh. It's what moves a person toward the bottle when they've had a really stressful day. I'm just going to get drunk. Listen, that's not the Spirit who says to not be drunk with wine, be drunk with the Holy Spirit. That's your flesh. It's what makes living together before marriage seem so acceptable. By the way, this is increasingly rampant among millennial believers. It's what pulls your eyes to stare at what you shouldn't be looking at and then play through your, your mind scenes that your spouse would be horrified of if they could read your thoughts. That's all the flesh. The flesh, by the way, never takes a day off, has what seems superhuman endurance and a voracious appetite that only gets more ravenous the more you feed it. You ever notice that? I'll take a common report that I get with any kind of addiction, any kind. You can go a couple months without giving in to the addiction, and you feel that taste of freedom, you feel the joy, the hope that comes into your life, and then all of a sudden you make one slip up and you sin, and all of a sudden the power of that addiction 
is full force again. That's how the flesh works. It has a ravenous appetite. It increases the more you feed it. What about marriage conflicts? Marriage conflicts. Dave, Dave Harvey wrote an incredible book. And he writes this, what if you abandon the idea that the problems and the weaknesses in your marriage are caused by lack of information, dedication, or communication? By the way, that's the prevailing thought that most marriage problems are communication, finances, or sex. That's the three statistically big reasons why people seek marriage counseling. He goes on, what if you saw your problems as they truly are, caused by a war within your heart? You see, the problems in marriage, listen, it's really your flesh. It's two people that have unredeemed remnants that run contrary to God. It's true in dating. It's true in engagement. It's true in marriage. It's true in family structures. It's true in companies with bosses to their employees and workers to workers and dorm rooms and classmates. Listen, fighting relational problems is coming from our flesh. But more deeply, more personally, the flesh, now let me just use Tim Ackley for a little bit. This might take a little of the steam of pressure off of you so you can hear this a little bit easier. The flesh in me, listen, it's the real me. Apart from the saving work of Jesus. Did you hear that? It's what I would look like if Jesus didn't save me. It's the Christless me. It's the me that I would be if God removed all of his restraining grace from my, my life. It is the true, ugly, horrifying picture of who I would really be if not for God's intervention. And my flesh hates God. It wants his throne, by the way. It's very jealous, very covetous for his authority. It wants to be the most high and command and control my life. And if you're close enough to me, it wants to control your life because you impact me therefore it's necessary that my flesh controls you or manages you and it is unswervingly committed to all that God hates and it's committed to me above everyone else and everyone else is not even a distant second that's my flesh now make no mistake about it that's your flesh the same way it's my flesh What about the unbeliever? Well, the picture is even more dim. For the unbeliever, the one who has rejected Christ, is, is being restrained. Now listen, you've got to understand this. The, 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 the unbeliever is being restrained to the degree that God's grace is operating in that person. I mean, very rarely, until you get to like Hitler and Stalin and some of the, the worst and most evil people imaginable, very rarely is anybody as evil as they can be. That's because God's grace restrains it. But you cannot picture the flesh and the Spirit of God as equal but opposite forces, and the victory is in doubt. You cannot picture that. Paul certainly is not saying this. He's clear. If you walk by the Spirit, verse 16, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, Christian brother and sister, the flesh in you, the flesh in me, listen, it's been defeated. It's been defeated. It's been nailed to the cross. The old man was nailed to the cross. Now listen, time out for a second. Don't be too quick to equate old man with flesh. It's not that easy. 
but the old identification of who you were was nailed on the cross with Christ. And though the flesh in you is dead or dying, it still exerts pressure and power. One day it will be radically, radically gone, totally systemically gone. That day will not be until heaven. But here and now you can begin to have victory over the flesh if you walk by the Spirit. But I want you to hear what church father, early church father Jerome said, fantastic writer, theologian. Here's what he said about the flesh that battled in himself. He was a monk. He took himself out of the world to avoid temptation. Listen to this. Oh, how I often imagined that I was in the midst of the pleasures of Rome when I was stationed in the desert, when he was a monk in a, in a monastic lifestyle, in that solitary wasteland which is so burned up by the heat of the sun that it provides a dreadful habitation for the monks. I often thought I was dancing with a chorus of girls. My face was pale from fasting, but my mind burned with passionate desires within my freezing body, and the fires of sex seized. This is a Christian, wildly influential of the early church. And yet he saw the way that his flesh reared up and fought against God, even in the, most, even in the midst of the most spiritual of activities. See, our problem is the desire of the flesh. And listen, we need desperate Help. We desperately need help to overcome it. And here's what I've told you so far. We've got a freedom. Every Christian has a freedom. We're free. We're free from the power and the penalty and the guilt of sin, and we're free to love. We've been given the power to do not what we want, but what we ought. But there's a battle in us. That was point number two. That battle is the flesh hates that. The flesh hates our freedom. The flesh wants to enslave you, wants to deceive you, wants to convince you. You'll never get over that sin habit. You're never going to really be who God wants you to be. Therefore, wallow, wallow in condemnation. Just let shame have its way because you're never going to be any different. That's the, that's the lie of the flesh. But point number three is the key. We have the key to victory in this war. But I say, walk by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, the Greek word for walk, ready? Here's your second big, fun word to drop on somebody, peripatetic. And it's really not that complicated because it's actually used in English parlance. Peripatetic is not an unused English word. It actually has been used in this way. He lives, he lives the peripatetic life of the military, meaning that he moves from place to place, which is what the word means. It means walking from place to place. That's what the word walk means. So to walk by the Spirit is that wherever you walk place to place, you do it by the Spirit. Now we're going to get to the preposition, what that really means, by the Spirit. But let me give you a little bit more background on peripatetics. You know Aristotle, Greek philosopher, had what was called the peripatetic school because he would teach his disciples while he was on the move going about his day. So they were actually called the peripatetic disciples. Literally called that. Jesus adopts the same rabbinical method of teaching, your, teaching his disciples as he lived life 
going from place to place, place together with them. It was said by the way of the rabbis and the disciples in the first century that the disciples would learn to follow their rabbis so closely that if the rabbi walked with a limp, you would see behind him all of his disciples walking with the same limp. That's true. You see, this is the power of the Spirit of God's transformation. This is how he gives victory over the flesh. This is how he makes us increasingly like Jesus. This is how he helps us live in that freedom to overcome the power of sin and love the way that we ought. This is how he does it. We walk by the Spirit. And what comforts us is that wherever we are throughout the day, at every single moment, now listen, don't gloss over this. Grab hold of what I'm about to tell you. At every single moment, the Spirit of God is with you. He is in you. He is teaching you. He is speaking to you. He is empowering you. That's every single moment of your day. I believe even when you are sleeping. Have you not ever been attacked spiritually in the most horrific dreams? Where you wake up and your entire day is emotionally ruined. Do you not think that spiritual warfare, even then, the Spirit of God is working? Friends, it's to be the normal life for the Christian. That we walk by the Spirit. If we're going to stand in our freedom and overcome the flesh, we must learn what it means and learn how to live and walk by the Spirit. It's a life grounded. Here's what it looks like. It's a life grounded on the path of God's Word. It's a heart yielded to God's Spirit. Now let me just put it super starkly for a moment. Really, really clear. Every single time... Now Christian, I'm only speaking to you because this is not true of the unbeliever. Every single time that you sin, that I sin... Listen, you've got to just tell yourself this. You've got to convince yourself this is the truth. Every single time you have chosen it. You didn't have to. You had the power not to sin. The Spirit of God was doing battle in you. You chose to forfeit that. You chose to walk away from him so that you can get what your flesh desired. Every single sin was a choice on your part and on my part to do it. There's no exceptions to this. When the Spirit of God convicts you, You must immediately repent. Now listen, this is what I'm learning to do. I'm inviting you on this journey. You must immediately repent. And here's how you confess. God, I chose to do that. I did not need to do that. I had the power to not do that, but I wanted to do that. I need you to change my desires. Forgive me and let me walk By your power. That's what you say every single time he convicts you after sin. Until it becomes a habit that you remember before you sin. And when he reassures you that he has forgiven you, you walk confidently. You don't walk carrying the ball and chain of what you did. 
You let it go, and in faith you move into the future, trusting his direction. And when he teaches you, you value it immediately as what is necessary for your soul. Listen, the Spirit of God is not going to teach you anything that was not critically important. Everything, let me put it on the other way, every single thing that the Spirit of God teaches you is absolutely critical for your walking in the freedom that he's given through Christ. And when he warns you, I mean, come on, have you not been on your way down the path of sin? And something weird interrupts it. That's the Spirit of God. And you've got your opportunity to say, it's time to turn around. Or to do what your flesh says. Ignore it, go around it, and go get what you want. That interruption, as uncanny as it may be, it could be a phone call. The telephone rings. It's a text It's an odd alert on the weather channel that there's a storm coming. Hey, take that from the Lord that there's a storm of sin coming. And you better turn it around and walk by the Spirit because he's not leading you into sin. See, at all times, walking by the Spirit means you stay close to him. And what is perhaps not so obvious is that walking by the Spirit is a command. Now, can you remember this? Because this is true systemically throughout the entire Bible. Whenever God gives you a command, he gives you the power to do it. I'm going to put it a little differently. God will never command you to do what he will not empower you to do. Never. If he's giving us a command, you must walk by the Spirit. If that's a command, which it is in the Greek tense, if that's a command, then he will give you the power to do it. He will overcome the desires of the flesh. You know, Romans 13, 14 has a tremendous verse. It says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You see that word provision in that verse? Here's what it means. It means forethought and planning was actually used in the military through their supply chains. Forethought and planning. And Paul is telling us, stop thinking how to get what your flesh wants. You've got to cut off the supply. Meaning, if the flesh is driving you into greed and materialism, they cut off the credit cards. Invite accountability. Stop surfing Amazon, stoking the fires of materialism. If your flesh is never satisfied with enough clothing, well, cut off the supply. Clean out your closets. Give the clothing away. Throw away the discount codes and the coupons. Invite accountability. You know, I remember one country preacher saying this. Stop tying your horse to the saloon post if you cannot stop drinking. Listen, ironically, that's what your flesh does. It actually maneuvers you closer to what it is you want, thereby gives you kind of an excuse. Well, God, I would have resisted it, but I had all of these temptations. Paul's saying, well, you're making provisions for your flesh. You're stockpiling. You're supplying it with power. You're living in a way that's making it more effective to run you contrary to what God wants. 
So you cut off the supply. You stop thinking on it. You adjust your life so your flesh cannot get inspiration. You have the constant awareness that the flesh is trying to get you to rebel against God. By the way, do you know that? Is that something that is literally consciously in your mind throughout the day? Do you ever stop and think, my flesh is going to try to get me to rebel? My flesh is going to try to get me to find the throne so that I can rule my life. And here comes that stressful day, horrible day at work. It's a trigger that says, flesh, it'll make me feel better if you have your way. So let's go get what it is you're promising. And meanwhile, the Spirit of God and the Christian is saying, clacks and bells are going off. You better stop. You better turn around. You're going to the path of ruin. And he will interrupt. And if you have the presence of mind, and if you will stop, and if you will Confess to the Lord, God, I know where I'm going. I know what my flesh is trying to do. Give me the power now. And you make that phone call for accountability. You get on your knees in prayer. You get into the word of God to remember the path that you ought to be walking. The power of the spirit will overcome the desires of the flesh. Listen, the spirit of God is working to change our desires so that I want nothing more than to love God and love people. And what we're going to find out next week, I hope you hear this. I hope it gives you an, a bit of an anticipation to come next week. What you're going to find next week is that every single deed of the flesh is an absolute commitment to yourself. You see, this is the freedom of Christ. This is what the Spirit of God invites you into, where you don't think of yourself that much. You think of other people more. And when you're thinking of other people more rather than yourself, all of a sudden you love, and all of a sudden you've got joy, and all of a sudden you're flooded with peace and gentleness and kindness and knowledge and self-control. All these things are coming because your needle and your compass is not pointing to you. It's pointing to God and to other people because the Spirit of God has shifted it. But if you are led, verse 18, by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now see, to be under the law is to be living as if you're still a prisoner of sin with no way to defeat it. See, our power is futile. The Spirit is limitless. It can overcome the flesh. He frees us, Jesus did, to live as Christ lived. The Spirit of God is helping us live out this freedom. It's something that the law can never do. The law imprisons us. In fact, the law was always intended to bind us up under its curse, showing us our helplessness, placing the weight of guilt on our souls with no reprieve. And you might be wondering, well, isn't that cruel? Why did God give the law? He gave the law to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we'll turn to Jesus. When we can be blessed because we're poor in spirit means we're crushed. Our hearts are crushed. We feel the weight that God is judging us because of our sins. And we've got no way to clean up our act. We've got no way to atone for it. And our power, if it's not for Jesus, we've got the wrath of God. And that poor in spirit, the crushed one, moves to Jesus. By the way, this is exactly what Paul says in Galatians 3. This is the purpose of the law. The law was our guardian until Christ came. You know what that means? The guardian was the person that was a slave. 
Listen, the guardian was a slave in the master's house whose job it was to get the children to the school and make sure they get back home safely. That was the job of the law of God. All of those commands, all of that Mosaic law was to crush you, was to crush me. You cannot keep the holy demands of God. You deserve God's wrath. Look how you've sinned. God is holy. You are anything but. I am anything but. I am no hope unless I flee to the one on the cross who perfectly kept the law. Who died as a substitute in my place. Who took the father's wrath that should have been mine. And instead gave me the moment I believed. His acceptance and his love and an inheritance. You know being led by the spirit back to verse 18. That word led. It's the same basic word as guardian. Being led by the spirits to have a new guardian who will lead us into the kingdom of God. You know, there's one ancient proverb in the Greek proverbs. It went like this. The free man is one who lives as he chooses. That's not true. That's not freedom. That's how the Greeks viewed freedom. That's not how Paul says that we have freedom. It's to live by the spirit of God. To be led by the spirit of God. Listen, all that means is this. And what that means is you're yielded to him. You walk by him, meaning you're listening to him. You're watching for him. You're relying on his power. Led by the spirit. He's the one in the front. You're the one behind. You're yielded. You're ready to go where he says. If you're yielded to the spirit, walking in his power, you will be living out your freedom. And you will have power over your flesh. So brothers and sisters, we are free from the power and the guilt of our sin. And we're free to love and serve God and to love and serve one another. And the Spirit of God lives inside of us. He's waging war against the flesh. And as we walk by his power, we will experience Victory, And we'll live out the freedom to love. That's the wonderful result of our freedom. And no wonder it leads the list of the fruit, the characteristics of the fruit. Here's what I'm going to close with. Christian, I want you to look at me for just a moment. If you're not a Christian, here's what you have waiting for you. The moment you turn to Jesus, your only remedy But Christian, here's what you have already. You have the Spirit of God not walking by your side. Listen, walking inside you. He lives. Come on. God lives in me. God lives in you. You are the temple of God. And he is working in your heart to help you to live out the freedom that Jesus gained for you and gave you on the cross. And to be able to exercise the power over sin that his resurrection has guaranteed you. And you get to walk in that power of God. And when you walk by the Spirit and you are led by the Spirit, all of a sudden you have victory more and more over your flesh. And the moment that you sin, it is immediate repentance and it is confession to God I sinned God I know I did because I wanted to that was on me that's not on you that's not on my parents it's not on anybody who abused me that is on me and it's my responsibility and you give me the power to have victory let's go do it again let's get back on the path and help me to walk in this freedom
We're going to learn all about this in the next 10 weeks. I am praying for transformation. In my life, I'm going to pray for transformation in yours. And I'm going to invite you, don't miss a week. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.